My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Welcome to Providence Road. We are, um, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, I'm honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us, especially if you're a guest or a visitor. We're really glad that you're here um, this morning. Uh, Before his own death, Steve Jobs, um, on 60 Minutes, when reflecting on life and thinking about his death that was coming, he had a, a battle with cancer, so he knew that was approaching. Um, he gave his thoughts on hope and the afterlife. And this is a clip from that interview. He says this, I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience, maybe a little wisdom, and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives that maybe your consciousness endures. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. And Jobs was not a Christian, right? Probably an atheist, at best an agnostic, um, had all you could possibly have in this world. Like, you can't have more money, you can't have more power. I mean, this guy had it all um, as being the leader of Apple and an innovator and a creator and all those things. Yet, on his deathbed, in a sense, he's still kind of haunted by this idea that there might be something more. This might not be all that there is. This is a sharp guy, a guy who thinks, and he is, he is wrestling with questions like, what happens when we die? Like, it just feels so final, like everything, from his point of view, all, all that he'd worked for, all that he'd created, all the good that had come out of a company like Apple, and he's reflecting on it, and he's like, is this really it? Like, is this, all this is going to happen, and then, and then it's just going to be over, period? And then within that's this question, how does it all end? How is this going to go? And these are questions that all human beings ask themselves. I'm convinced. Even people who would not consider your, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a, a church-going type person, and yet I guarantee you, you're, you still think about these things ever so often. Even if it comes on potentially your deathbed, people begin to think about these things. And I think that's because God created us. It's hardwired into us to know that this is not all that there is. This 70, 80, if you're, if you're, if you're blessed and fortunate 90 years maybe here on earth, if, if, this, is, if this is all that there is, that's, that's a problem, and we know that. We, we know that there's something more after this, but a lot of us don't know what that is. And the main question we're going to answer today is that last one there, how does it all end? We've been walking through the biblical story over the last eight weeks, and in, in, amongst those eight weeks, we've been looking at these four questions. What is the purpose of humanity, or why are we here? We looked at what is the problem? Why why is the world in the condition that it is? What's the solution to the problem? We've looked at that the last several weeks, and the solution we said is Jesus. The life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the answer to the problem of the world, and the problem is sin. But we talked about last week that we're, in this, that we're in this kind of phase that we're living in now. We find ourselves in this story, at least last week we looked at, well, Jesus has come, 
the solution has begun to happen. We see the effects of that, but things maybe in this world don't feel a lot different. Things haven't changed maybe in the world around us a lot, even though Jesus has come. So there's not this completion to the story yet, and that is where we're going today. This question of how does it all end? And this is the final um, sermon in this series uh, that we, we've called The True and Better Story. And next week, we're going to move into the Advent season. So hopefully, you'll come back um, and join us for the Advent season. We'll spend four weeks um, observing Advent. But questions involving this, this idea of where are we going and how, how's everything going to end, things like, what do I hope for? Where's my hope lie? Where am I going? How does it all end? Not, not the world, like the cosmic, how does it all end? But also, how does my life end? What happens to me when my life is over? And I believe, as, as many of you hear, that the scriptures truly give us deep and lasting hope by showing us how it all ends, by guaranteeing us how this thing is going to end, no matter how rough our times are today, no matter how rough life gets, if you are a follower of Jesus, we can take comfort and have hope that we know the ending to the story. It's really nice being a character in the story when you know the ending, and the ending is good. It's favorable for those who are in Christ. The main idea we're going to look at today, though, is, um, it'll be on the screen here, the biblical story comes to an end when King Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. I'll read that again. The biblical story comes to an end when King Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. And we're going to pick that apart today as we move through um, our time today. And when we talk about Jesus' return, we are talking about um, how things are going to end, the last things. This, this uh, fancy word theologians use is called eschatology. Literally meaning the science of the last things. Eska, eschaton, that is the last things, and then ology is obviously the science of. So the science of the last things. Now it's important to know, before we move into this, that the Bible isn't necessarily concerned with giving you and giving me, giving us, exactly how it is all going to end, right? It's not necessarily concerned with the, the, the how and the what and the when and the what's going to happen before this. And often as Christians, we can get caught up in those details and really want to know all of the things when it comes to when Jesus is returning. And I think some of that's human nature. We saw that last week in the beginning of Acts when Jesus is about to um, ascend back to heaven and his disciples, are, they're fired up, they're excited, they're saying, when's it going to happen? How's it, where are we going to go? Like, are you going to come back? And you can imagine them just, just peppering Jesus with questions and Jesus there in um, Acts 1, 6 and 7 says, um, now wait a minute, it's not for you to know the times or the places or how this is all going to end up. He tells his closest disciples, it's not for you to know these things. So we should listen to that as well and try not to get caught up into all the details. But there are some things that the Bible is very clear on that will happen when it comes to studying eschatology or the last things. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So here are the list of things we're going to focus on. Um, it's kind of the outline today. One, Jesus returns. 
We can bank on that. The scriptures are crystal clear that Jesus will come back. Second thing, the dead are raised. The dead are raised bodily, some to live in the new creation and some to raise to God's final wrath. Uh, Point three, Jesus reigns in full power over the new heavens and the new earth. He reigns supreme. Fourth, the world comes before Christ or Jesus to be judged. And then fifth, we're going to look at how do we live in light of this. In light of all of the things that are true about the, last, the, last, the, the end of days or the last things, how should that affect the way we live today? So let's look at number one, Jesus returns. Now this can be a little confusing because Jesus has already come once, right? And he's already said, I'm bringing the kingdom with me. Look at Mark 1 uh, verses 14 and 15. This is at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry on earth. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we're living in this time period that theologians call the already but not yet, right? Jesus has come. The kingdom has come in some measure. It is here on earth in some measure. It came when Jesus came. Listen to Tim Keller talk about this idea of the already but not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet in its fullness. We must not underestimate how present the kingdom of God is. But we also must not underestimate how unrealized it is, how much it exists only in the future. Because the kingdom is present partially, but not fully, we must expect substantial healing, but not total healing in all areas of life. So what Keller is describing here is this this tension of the already, but not yet. And I think it's helpful for us to think of this as a tension. On one side, you have the already, and on the other side, you have the not yet. And for now, we have to live in that tension, and it's important for us to keep the tension there. Because the problem is, if, if, we put all, if we overemphasize the already to the, king, to, to the exclusion of the not yet, if we think the, the kingdom's come in fullness, it's, all, it's here, he's come fully, then we will want very quick solutions to problems. We will think that when something bad happens to us, something must be wrong with God because he's allowing something bad to happen to us. We don't have the full inheritance that Jesus promises us now, so we get frustrated because we don't have that inheritance. Again, there's a not yet to the kingdom, right? There's a not yet. God doesn't heal everyone here on earth. He just doesn't, right? We can ask him to heal. We can believe he can heal. We know biblically he can heal, heal, but the kingdom hasn't fully come yet, so we can't say, God, if you don't do this, therefore you're not God, right? And we will also be um, despondent and really depressed by suffering and tragedy. Because imagine, if the kingdom has already come fully, and this is all we get from the world like, come on, God, like your kingdom's come, and yet we're, we're still living with this mess and the brokenness and the fighting, so we shouldn't lean too far into the already. But again, there's another side of this. We can't lean too far, far to the not yet, or we will become pessimistic. We withdraw from the world, saying, I'm going to protect myself and just bunker down until Jesus comes back. 
because this world's bad. There's nothing good in this world. The kingdom hasn't come at all. So I'm going to pull back, right? And I'm not going to believe that God can move. I'm not going to believe in miracles. I'm not going to believe that God could actually heal. When something miraculous happens, I can't give credit to God because the kingdom hasn't come yet. We don't want to fall into that trap as well. We don't want to be too afraid of being polluted by this broken world. But the kingdom has come. We do have the spirit living inside of us. The spirit actually uses us and works through us in ministry to bring forth his purposes. So the kingdom has come, just hasn't come fully yet. And we must keep this tension. We must keep the tension. But the good news is, is this is just for a short period of time, or there's a limited period of time in this kind of phase of history, because Jesus will return again. And when he does return, we're not going to have to worry about the already, but not yet. We're not going to have to worry about, well, is the kingdom fully here or kingdom not fully here? No. It'll be fully here. Here, he's coming. It'll be finished. So Jesus will come back, period. That's number one. The second thing, the dead are bodily raised. The dead are raised bodily, right? The dead are raised bodily. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. There's a few teachings that Paul really zeroes in in the New Testament on this, and this is one of these areas. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. There you go. Jesus will return. He's thinking about the future here. And it says, and the dead in Christ, so those who are in Christ, those who are saved, those who have faith, those who believe, those who are in Christ will rise first, right? So if you, if you, if you passed away, if you've died, and you're in Christ, then you will, you will come back first. Then, next, we who are alive, so those who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, and are still living when Jesus returns, will be caught up together with them, Paul says, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then verse 18 is really important, and he's just explained a lot more of this even before verse 16 that I don't have time to read, but after those 17 verses in verse 18, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so, like, think about this. Think about when Jesus is going to return. Think about what will happen when he, he comes back. Think about what I've just taught you here. Think about it and allow it to encourage you. It's amazing how often in the New Testament the church is encouraged by what's going to happen in the end times, when Jesus is going to return. They use that, that, the, the future to encourage, I think, much more than we do oftentimes in our day and age. They're always pointing the church to the future, the writers in the New Testament are. So we know, again, we don't know all the details. It's not given here in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? But we do know that there will be a bodily resurrection for people when Jesus comes back. Okay, there will be. Now, what more details on what this will look like? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again. A little different angle, but he's still talking about this time period. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying it is written, 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Those, those of us who are in Christ, who put their faith in Jesus, will be raised with Jesus, right? We will be raised with him, right? Now, that's, so Jesus will come back. He is coming back, and the dead will be raised. Now we're going to move into Revelation for the rest of our time, mostly the rest of our time. And in Revelation, John is writing. Oftentimes we, we kind of forget when we, I think we get into Revelation, we think of, okay, this is just the handbook to how this thing's all going to end. And John does speak to that. But this is a letter. This is a letter written to churches in Asia Minor, right? Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And this collection of churches was suffering greatly under the hands of the Roman Empire. It got really bad for the church after Jesus ascended. If you read any early church history uh, from, you know, A.D. 35 to like A.D., really to the, to the end of that century, it was really rough for Christians in the Roman Empire. The emperors were persecuting them a great deal. And so uh, John is exiled to Patmos by the, the, the Romans, right, to die a lonely death on this basically prison island. And God gives John a vision, and John writes it down. And this is what we read in Revelation, right? And so you got to think of this, these churches in Asia Minor as this, this spiritual outpost that are fighting this battle to extend God's kingdom by their gospel presence, fact that they're present there, they're fighting this battle in this dangerous environment. They're an outpost of the kingdom in the Roman Empire. They are probably frightened. They're probably scared. They're probably tired of being persecuted, yet we see from the scriptures they're faithful. Now, at the beginning of Revelation, he hits them on some things, right? He, he, he exhorts them, he rebukes them, he encourages other churches in this area, but on the whole, he's trying to empower them to continue to do what they're doing in a really, really hard environment. And oftentimes, the church, the church in today's age, we feel like this as well. We, we're, we're frightened in some sense. We're scared. Where there's, there's, there's things, the decisions that our government makes or decisions Christians live in in other places as well that are scared, that are frightened. And so we have to read this like an encouraging letter to us even in our day an age. God wants him to see that there's a bigger battle raging um, in the heavens while we are here on earth fighting our battles. And the primary message is that God will triumph, right? That's the message of Revelation. Here's how it's going to end, and it's going to end well if you're a follower of Jesus. It's going to end well for the church, and, and, and God gives John this revelation to encourage us, to give us hope for what is coming in the future. And to know that Jesus is fully in control of all worldly events. Oftentimes we don't see that. Maybe we don't see his control, but yet he is in control of all worldly events. Okay? Last uh, 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 point three. Jesus reigns in full power over the new heavens and the new earth. Let's look at Revelation verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. This gives us a picture of what Jesus' reign is going to look like. Um, when the end comes. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on earth. 
And in verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're worshiping. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This gives us a really clear picture of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. We will be worshiping Jesus. We will see him face to face. Will we be doing other things? Yes. We, this isn't going to be a worship service that, that we think of. Of like we have we have seats facing facing the, the, the stage and Jesus on stage. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be an all of life event um, where we will be worshiping Jesus with our whole lives and the whole time we're in heaven. We can't even understand that because we never really experienced it before. Let's look at Revelation nineteen six through eight. Again, imagine this with your, with, your, with your mind. Again, this is the vision that God gave John. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And this is the, the kind of a, another image that he gives us of this wedding, right? This wedding ceremony. It's the wedding supper of the lamb, right? So, so the bride, which is the church, all Christians from all time who have ever believed in Jesus come collectively as one bride being presented to Jesus, the groom. God is presenting the bride to Jesus, the groom. And the church is purified and bright and there's just this, this, this imagery there that God intentionally gives us so we can understand. He gives us something that the majority of us has, have at least been to. Some of us have actually experienced a wedding ceremony, being in the ceremony. And some of us have, uh, most of us have at least attended one. And so we have this, this image and this, this, this imagery that will help us imagine what will happen in the end. There's relationship here between us and Jesus. In Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Michael Goheen in his book, Light to the Nation, says this. John's vision in Revelation and the rest of the New Testament does not depict salvation as an escape from earth into a spiritualized heaven where human souls dwell forever. Instead, John is shown and shows us in turn that salvation is the restoration of God's creation on the new earth. So we, we often, and I thought this for a long time, I couldn't, I couldn't picture what would the new heavens and the new earth look like. And just think of the, the language there, new heavens and new earth. Right? So we're not, gonna, we're not these disembodied souls that float up into the clouds and we're just hanging out on the clouds now with Jesus. I think that's a, a cheap, weak view of what heaven will actually be like. This is a new heavens and a new earth. So similar, some similarities to now, right? Because it's an, actually an earth. It's actually a new earth. So um, some theologians believe we'll have jobs, we'll have roles, we'll have, it's a city. Well, there, there may be buildings there. We know there'll be people there and animals there, the scripture says. And we know that these things will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we think of heaven, we should, we should use what we know of earth and think, imagine, what if Jesus came in fullness to the earth? And what would, our, what would our buildings look like? What would our jobs look like? What would, what, would we, what would our houses look like? These are the kinds of things that we should be dwelling on because it will be a new heavens and a new earth. And this imagery is really cool when it says the heavens come down to meet kind of the earth is because there's been a separation now. Since the Garden of Eden, the heavens and the earth have been separated because of humanity's sin. And now that sin has been removed, that barrier has been removed, and the heavens can come down to earth. There's this reconciliation that happens, full reconciliation between God and his people. So our horizontal relationship is healed, and our, I mean, our vertical relationship is healed, and our also our horizontal relationships are healed as well with other people. There'll be no more brokenness. All effects of sin will be removed. There's no more uh, sickness, pain, or suffering. And if we, because we've been thinking about this as a story, which is the benefit of this, just eight weeks ago we looked at the Garden of Eden. And this should bring to mind a new Garden of Eden where God dwells with man fully. And so this is, the, this is a full circle. It comes back full circle to the Garden of Eden. The last time God dwelt with his creation purely with no sin, no brokenness involved. And so the two are definitely connected the garden of eden and the new heavens and the new earth love reigns supreme in this new heavens and new earth the purpose of biblical history where this is all moving and the one of the reasons why we're doing this story in this series is so we'll see that that the purpose of history is a renewed creation one that is redeemed healed and restored not just humans being involved with that, which that's a huge part of that, but all of creation being restored. All of the new heavens and new earth, not just floating individuals on the clouds. It's a new heavens and a new earth. And this has massive implications for how we live. You can even imagine, if this is where it's headed, we know that God cares about the earth. He cares about people. He cares about structures and systems. He cares about all of those things because he made everything in this earth and he's going to renew everything one day. Uh, one author paints it like this, and I, and I like the imagery. I, I like history and I like uh, especially kind of World War II stuff. And one author compared this to like Jesus um, coming 
was the, the first time was like the invasion on D-Day, right? The, the army stormed uh, the beaches of Normandy, the other beaches there. We finally, the Allies finally landed on um, um, continental Europe, uh, mainland Europe. And this was kind of the beginning of the end, as we look back now, for Nazi Germany. It was the beginning of the end when the Allies landed and they got a foothold in Europe. And so the first coming, this author says, is Jesus's, is, is like the, the landing on on, on Normandy, right? The, the battle, you can see it from our vantage point, this battle is heading towards an end, but there was so much more fighting left, so much more war left, so much more carnage left, and that's the, the time period we're living in now. But one day, Jesus will finish everything, and he'll come back and he'll return the same way in that metaphor, or that imagery, I should say, um, that the, the allies raced across Europe, getting all the way to Germany. Now, the church may suffer, we may suffer for a time. And there's much suffering around the world. One of the, one of the things that I encourage you all to do every once in a while, just get online and, and, and Google the persecuted church and think about what they're going through now. Because that, they're living a little bit more like revelation and God's writing than we do in our country at the moment. Right? Look at Nigeria. Just Boko Haram is doing horrible things to the church in Nigeria. You look at the new regime in, in Afghanistan um, and what's happening to Christians in Afghanistan. You see in China the continuing pressure on foreign missionaries getting pushed out of China, told to remove, and then a house church is having to go deep, deep into hiding and having very little freedom, any of the freedom they had gained over the last several decades, um, losing it really fast. And that's just three examples. You can go to almost any country in parts of the world and see the church suffering. And this is, we need to be able to empathize with them and put ourselves in their shoes because it gives us this longing for Jesus to come back and make things right. And if we're not hurting, if we're not persecuted, it's a little bit harder to long for Jesus to return because we kind of like our life here. Like, like we kind of like the things we have here. We like, we, 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 we have, we're, we're, uh, we avoid pain enough and suffering enough in this world that we become a little bit more attached to things here, I believe, um, than many Christians do around the earth, around the world. And that's speaking from personal experience and getting to travel to several places. Um, listen to Michael Goheen again, talking about um, this age. But this age won't last forever and the mission won't be completed with Jesus sitting down. So right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? That's the imagery the Bible gives us, that he is right now seated. One day, he's going to get up. And when he does, the whole world will know it. His enemies will be made a footstool. His friends will be made his vice regents. And his creation will be made a paradise. That's a great paragraph. That didn't get you fired up what will. Like, Jesus is sitting down. He's just waiting. He's just waiting. God, say, God, Father, like, when, when can I stand up? When can I get my bride? When can I go? They're suffering. When, I'm gonna, when can I go? When can we make this right? One day he will stand up. He will come back and he will make all things right. And lastly, the world comes before Christ to be judged is kind of the fourth point. Matthew 25, 31 and 32. There's several other um, passages um, in the scriptures that talk about this. This is kind of the shortest and most clear. This is Jesus talking um, about his coming, his, his second coming. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
And this is not a, this is not a one-time thing that is spoken of in the scriptures. There's going to be a judgment. We don't really know how it's all going to go down, but we know there will be There'll, there'll be people separated, people who love Jesus, know Jesus, and people who didn't. And that is clear from the scriptures. It's clear from the scriptures. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have, I think you have a response to make. You have a response. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and in light of this truth that we find in the scriptures, we have a response to make. Now, the rest of us, how do we live in light of this, Right? So what? The question, right? So what? Like, so what? Jesus is coming back. That's great. I see the little bit of hope that that gives, right? But let's, let's dig in a little bit more. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. This is Paul ref, clearly referencing the second coming in order to motivate the church um, to follow Jesus and mature in Jesus in their faith. Listen to verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. That's one thing he says to do. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, here it is again. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things here on earth. So we've seen um, seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's just beautiful gospel metaphor of hidden. Like your whole life, All your sin, all your junk, all your wounds, all your brokenness, it's hidden in Christ. It's hidden in his righteousness. It's hidden in his work. It's hidden in who he is. So we're, as God views us, we're hidden in Christ. Then verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So when he comes back, that's what Paul's saying. When he returns, when he appears, he's talking about the second coming here. When he appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So he talks about our, we're, be, we're raised with him, we're hidden with him, we're going to be glorified with him. And because of that, he says, seek the things that are above and set your minds on things that are above. So that's two things we can do, right? Clear, right? Seek him and set your mind on him. Seek him and set your mind on him. How do we do that? Right? Well, we, we, have to, we have to create rhythms and practices in our life to actually do this. We, we talk about this a lot here. Because we, we all know, like, you're thinking about it now probably because we're talking about it. You're going to leave here today, you're going to lunch, you're going to go watch football, whatever you do on Sundays, right? And you're going to forget. You're going to forget, and you're not going to set your mind on Jesus. So what do we do to consistently bring our minds back to that, bring our eyes back to Jesus? Well, obviously, one's having what traditionally we call a quiet time, right? A time set aside every day where you focus on Jesus, and that's important. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than just an hour a day. I think it's having, having rhythms throughout your day. Like set, set a little notification on your phone every hour, every three hours. And just when it goes off, spend a minute um, reading a verse that you're trying to memorize. Right? Saying a, a, a pre-rehearsed prayer. to Again, it's just this trigger to set your mind on him, set your eyes on him. We are so distracted by so many things these days. It's the worst in the history of the world ever, the things that distract us. We need to combat that by actually putting some things into our lives, some rhythms to actually combat our distractedness, right? Because we're not going to naturally set our eyes and our minds on Jesus, okay? Secondly, um, one implication of this that's clear is that this is not just about us as individuals. The great thing about seeing this as a story, this is a story about God's people, This is a story about God saving a people 
for himself, beginning in Genesis 12 all the way to the end. We don't see a lot of individualism going on in, the, in these, the, the acts we've looked at in the story because it's not primarily about us. It's about his bride. It's about the church fulfilling his mission, fulfilling Jesus' mission, the church doing that. So if anything, it should be, hey, this thing is not about me. And second of all, it should, it should, it should give us this, um, this deeper appreciation for the body, for the bride of Christ and our unity with other churches and not just in now but churches that existed 2,000 years ago we're unified as one body and one bride and we see that I think clearly in the story this isn't just about us and the last thing this is where I think we we respond right we respond there, there it demands a response from us and those of us who trust in Jesus we can respond in hope those of us who aren't followers of Jesus I'm not sure how you respond. You don't have hope in the last things if you aren't in Christ. And so respond. Put your faith and trust in him. Trust that through the personal work of Jesus, you can be reconciled to God, and you can, be, you can experience everything we've looked at today. And I want to read this over us, and then I'm going to close in prayer. In the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus tells the church through John, he's coming back He says it three times in this chapter. I'm coming. I'm coming. Wait for me. I'm coming. Listen to this. Revelation 22, 20 through 21. He who testifies to these things, everything that John just said, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I I confess I put my hope in so many other things in a given day than this. And this, this, is, this is the only thing that truly lasts, our hope in Jesus, our hope that one day your son's going to come back and make things right. And we're gonna be united with him in a way that we, we don't even understand, united completely to him not just through your spirit and through the gospel, but fully united to him. So help us believe. What the disciple says, I, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Help us remember the second coming. Help us remember how the story ends. Help us have confidence when suffering comes, when brokenness comes, when death comes, that we don't grieve Suffering and death like those without hope. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we cry. Yes, we pound our fists on the table saying this world is messed up. Yes, we do those things. But through all of those things, we can respond in those ways as those who have hope. It's not this hopelessness that nothing will ever change. No, it's we're, we're sad. We're angry. We feel the brokenness in our world around us every day, but we trust and we hope. It's not this pie in the sky hope. It's hope based on the resurrection, the resurrected living Jesus Christ that one day will come back. Help us believe that. Help give us boldness as we live our lives. Give us uh, wisdom on how to set our lives up in such a way that we can set our eyes on you, set our minds on your gospel. Remember that our lives are hidden with you. Remember that we've been raised with you. We've been given the Holy Spirit to do all the things you've called us to do as the church. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.